What four-letter words were forbidden in your house growing up? There was only one four-letter word that was strictly prohibited in my family. What was it? You're about to find out in this episode of Datages. You know, when I was your age, go ask your mother. I know you don't like it. It builds character. How many times do I have to tell you? I'm not just talking to hear my own voice. Hello, listener, and welcome to Datages. I'm your host, Chad Hagel. And if you are looking for some fatherly wisdom for your career, your family, or any other aspect of your life, then you've come to the right place. If you want to learn more about Datages, find additional content, submit questions or feedback to me, or if you want to know if that mental picture you have of me after hearing my voice matches my real face, visit datages.com. Thanks for being here. And before you listen to our podcast, please listen to your father. Hello and welcome back, Datages friends and family. Four-letter words. We certainly have some great options from which to choose in the English language. I think the greatest master of profanity in the English language had to be George Carlin. Carlin was as much a philosopher as a comedian, and boy was he dirty. But he was also an amazing student of the English language. One of his most famous comedy routines was The Seven Words You Can't Say on TV, which ironically aired on TV, on HBO in 1977. We'll put a link in the bulletin board. But I will warn you in advance that it is definitely NSFW, not suitable for work. I didn't really cuss at all growing up. Believe it or not, I can remember the first time I cussed in front of one of my parents. I said shit while talking on the phone with my dad from college at 19 years old. When I got to the end of the sentence, I think I sat in silence for a solid two count before going on with the conversation. I just needed a moment to process what had just happened. The seal had been broken. But growing up, as I said, in my family, there was only one four-letter word I was explicitly prohibited from saying. And it's probably not one you're thinking of. It didn't even make Carlin's list. So what was the forbidden word? Can't. Can't. I wasn't allowed to say can't. If I ever said to my father, I can't do it. His response was, are you saying you can't or you won't? There's a difference. My father was unwilling to accept self-imposed limitations on my capabilities. Even at a very young age, he expected me to figure out how to do something. And he expected me to struggle with it. He was really instilling in me the notion of self-reliance. And as I sit here recording this episode fittingly on Independence Day, I can say it worked. I've carried with me throughout my life a sense that there's not a defined limit to my capabilities, or anyone else's for that matter. There's always a way. It may not be obvious, and it may be that the current way you're trying to do something is never going to work, but that doesn't mean there's not a way. Even if something takes more than a lifetime, that doesn't mean it's impossible. I was struck by this realization when I was in Barcelona two weeks ago. I visited Sagrada Familia, an astounding basilica in the heart of Barcelona. This church has been under construction since 1882. That's right, 1882 and still going. The visionary and acclaimed architect, Antoni Gaudi, was responsible for the project. 
When he assumed responsibility for it in 1883, he truly dedicated himself to the project through his death. He knew the project could not be completed in his lifetime, but he worked in earnest and devoted himself to it nonetheless until he was tragically struck by a tramway car in the streets of Barcelona and died later from his injuries in a nearby hospital. Gaudi was determined, perhaps obsessed, with completing the project, even though it could not be completed in his lifetime. He took steps in the way he designed the building, the course of construction, and the training of people around him to ensure the endeavor could continue well beyond his lifetime. I'm not sure he realized that it would still be in construction 140 years later, but it doesn't change the fact that he devoted himself to working on such an ambitious project, defining the vision, injecting the inspiration, and charting a course that would keep the project underway for well over a century. What I wrote down after visiting the Basilica was this. It takes dedication to accomplish something that takes a long time. It takes passion to accomplish something that takes a lifetime. It takes inspiration to accomplish something that takes multiple lifetimes. We've loaded a few pictures of Sagrada Familia into the bulletin board at datages.com. Check them out. Obviously, I never undertook a project as ambitious as Gaudi when I was growing up, but I was taught not to give up, as I said. Here are some of the common expressions I'd hear from my father when I expressed frustration over something difficult. I already gave you one of them. Are you saying you can't or you won't? Others include, when a project seemed overwhelmingly big, you have to eat an elephant one bite at a time. And when I complained about the difficulty of a task, I didn't say it was going to be easy, I just said you need to do it. And perhaps the simplest, yet most frustratingly effective response, you'll figure it out. This one is so effective, I think, because it's not an order or a command, nor is it a direction or instruction, nor is it advice or guidance. It's simply a statement of fact. You'll figure it out. How do you argue with that one? It just brings the entire discussion to an immediate end. Well played, Dad. So that was my dad. The thing that really drove my mom crazy was when I would say, I can't find it. I'm sure every parent out there can relate to this one, and I'm sure every wife can as well. You all know if you've seen me that I obviously experience male pattern baldness, but I also suffer from an even more common trait. Male pattern blindness. I really thought I came up with this term on my own. But then I found it's in the Urban Dictionary already, which makes it official, and there is actually a whole category of videos on YouTube dedicated to this problem. One particular mom blogger, Deva Del Porto, actually posted a video about this affliction several years ago that got millions of views and landed her on the Today Show. We'll put links to her Facebook page, which is called my Life Suckers, and the YouTube video that we discussed on our bulletin board. Way to go, Deva. Anyway, as many men do, I've struggled with male pattern blindness for much of my life. As a child, my mom did what she could to correct my impaired vision. After the first hundred or so times, she eventually forbade me from saying, I can't find it. Alas, as my wife will tell you, despite the efforts of my mom, my blindness was never fully eradicated. There is a cure out there, I'm sure of it, but alas, 
I can't find it. I'm obviously joking about this affliction, but I don't want to downplay the real challenges faced by people who have a true disability. Did you know that 27% of adults in the United States experience some form of disability? I didn't know this statistic, which I found in my research at the Center for Disease Control. We'll put a link to their website dedicated to disability and health promotion on our bulletin board. And disability is truly a global challenge, with over 1.3 billion people with disabilities worldwide. I'm no expert in disabilities. I don't even have a complete understanding of the right vernacular to discuss these topics consistent with the language adopted by the community. But I'm committing myself to learning, and I apologize in advance if I misspeak along the way. Here at Datages, we've decided to devote a lot more time to this subject. July is National Disability Awareness Month here in the United States, and we're going to spend the rest of this month on this important topic. I was inspired to do so by a couple of individuals who are members of the Datages friends and family. While traveling in New York a few years ago, my wife and I met Martin and Dana Alcott from Australia. They're parents to Dylan Alcott. Dylan is one of the most successful athletes of all time. I'm talking true GOAT status. He won his first Olympic gold medal at age 17 as a member of Australia's national men's wheelchair basketball team, known as the Australian Rollers. His greatest athletic success, though, has been on the tennis court. He's the only man to complete the Golden Slam in quad singles, winning all four majors and the Paralympics in 2021. In addition, he also won a separate non-calendar year Grand Slam in quad singles between 2018 and 19. He's also the only man to complete the Grand Slam in quad doubles, winning all four major titles in 2019. Dylan has frequently given this advice to disabled children. The biggest thing is that for every one thing you can't do, there are 10,000 others you can. But don't take my word for it. You'll get the chance to hear from Dylan himself. In our upcoming episodes, Martin Alcott will join us from Down Under in the Dadages virtual studio for chatting with dads. He'll share his stories and wisdom from raising such an amazing son. And then both Martin and Dylan will join us for our first ever Father-Son Entrepreneur's Corner. We're going to discuss their company, which is called The Field. It's focused on education and training for both disabled employees and employers to expand career opportunities for disabled individuals. The company is very successful in Australia and is working to break into the American market as well. We'll see if we can't just help them get a positive boost in that endeavor. As you can tell, this is going to be an exciting month for us here on Datages. But before we go on to that journey, let's back up a bit. Let's talk more about the can-do mindset and its application to the professional realm. The majority of us are not Paralympians or working to overcome our challenges to win major athletic championships, but there are some fundamental principles for success based on application of an achievement-focused approach. Let's first revisit some of the basic principles of project management they were introduced in part two of the Datages series entitled The Distance Between Success and Failure. If you haven't listened to that episode, I encourage you to go back and do so. This is where I first introduced the notion of don't let what you can't do prevent you from doing what you can. 
In particular, we talked about the critical path analysis in the management of general contractors and the propensity that contractors have for letting obstacles get in the way of progress when they're not properly managed. But these principles don't only apply to general contractors. I recently ran into these same challenges in dealing with an accounting department for an affiliated JV partner firm. I'm convinced that their accounting department runs on the principle of let absolutely anything you can't do prevent you from doing anything whatsoever. Let me give you two examples. They were managing construction accounting for a series of projects, and the general contractor had a series of pending change orders. Some of the change orders were additive, meaning they would cost the owner more money. And in this case, the additive change orders were disputed because the contractor was trying to claim additional monies that were not due under the contract. Surprise, surprise. The other change orders were deductive change orders that were not disputed and had been agreed to by the owner and the contractor. The accounting department just delayed and delayed and delayed and delayed submitting the deductive change orders for processing. And when I asked why, They said it was because the other additive change order requests that were disputed had not yet been resolved. Wait a minute here. You mean to tell me that you are withholding the processing of undisputed change orders that could save us money because you're sitting here arguing about disputed change orders that could cost us more money? Does that make any sense at all? I have no direct management control over this accounting team, so despite my continual pushing and prodding, This process drug on for months. So what happened? No surprise to me whatsoever. There were problems later in the construction projects that led to disputes with the contractor, and lo and behold, those undisputed deductive change orders, they were no longer so undisputed. Waiting to take care of what could have been done eroded the ability to accomplish what would have been simple and non-confrontational had it been handled in a timely manner. Another example, different situation, same accounting department. There were a series of reimbursements that were due to Aventine, my company, from this partner firm. There were some perceived inconsistencies pointed out with a set of the expenses to be reimbursed. The items flagged were reasonable for them to flag. They happened to be wrong, there were no actual problems, but my bookkeeping department had not presented the information in a clear way and had invited the scrutiny. Our fault. But as a result of those perceived discrepancies on a few of the invoices, the accounting department had completely shut down the flow of reimbursements to our company. Every time we followed up on the dozens of outstanding items, all they would refer back to were the few items that were of concern. This circumstance has had a pretty crippling effect on my company recently, and it stems from a couple of individuals making decisions within a we-can't paradigm rather than an achievement-driven culture. It's very hard for me not to be frustrated by such a situation, but I don't make the rules for that organization. This brings me to an important topic within the subject of not letting what you can't do interfere with what you can. Understanding the rules. My father has always said to me that he always wants to understand the rules in any circumstance, not so he can break them, but so he can determine how best to navigate within them to produce the best outcome possible. 
know what you aren't allowed to do in order to maximize the benefits associated with what you can. Perhaps the most relevant and consistent application of this concept is in taxes. My father has also said that in real estate, we spend 50% of our time making money and 50% of our time trying to keep the government from taking it. This is not about tax evasion, and it's certainly not about breaking the law. It's about understanding the law and consciously making decisions that allow you to operate within the law to maximize the financial outcome of your hard work. We make all of our decisions in our business based upon an analysis of post-tax outcomes, not trying to fool ourselves with great financial success that can get wiped out through tax liability. By understanding important nuances of the tax code, we can make decisions up front that will produce tax-optimal outcomes rather than proceeding blindly and hoping the government doesn't hit us for taxes later. In real estate development, perhaps the most important element of the tax code to understand is the 1031 tax-deferred exchange. I can't give you a full tutorial. One, I never give out tax advice. That's just a bad idea. It's actually the third worst advice you can give behind investment advice and dating advice. As much as we are all about advice here at Datages, we know our limits. Safety first. But I'm happy to offer you a simple explanation of what a 1031 exchange is. As an aside here, do any of you ever listen to the Smartless podcast? I recommend it. Jason Bateman, Will Arnett, and Sean Hayes are pretty hilarious, and they have a great thing going with their wildly successful podcast. Props to those guys. Anyway, when the fellas start talking showbiz and discussing details that someone outside the industry might not understand, Sean Hayes always says this explanation is for my sister, Tracy. Sean has explained in the past that Tracy knows nothing about show business, so he always pauses to explain for Tracy's benefit. Why am I discussing all of this? Well, because my sister's name is Bree, and she's not in commercial real estate, but she's interested in the family business, and I try to make time to teach her what I can when I can. So I'll say this next explanation about a 1031 exchange is for my sister, Bree. Under Section 1031 of the IRS tax code, upon the sale of a piece of real estate held for investment income, the seller can deposit the proceeds with what is called an exchange intermediary. So long as the investor never touches that money, it can be reinvested within six months into a like-kind asset, meaning another piece of real estate held for investment purposes. By doing so, there is no present tax consequence. The investor does not have to pay tax on the capital gain from the sale. However, the tax impacts are not eliminated. They're just deferred until the sale of the newly held asset. Unless, of course, the investor trades those gains forward under the same tax code provision in the future and defers the gain even further. There are lots more nuances and regulations around this structure, but that's the basic premise of it. As you can see, this provision could be tremendously beneficial financially, and managing it properly and consciously making decisions to comply with the provisions of the code present significant benefits. Know the rules. The next principle of maintaining an achievement-focused mindset in a professional setting is to tailor your communications toward achieving results. Generally speaking, it is very unproductive to ask open-ended questions in business. 
I've talked before about structuring questions in negotiations to achieve the outcomes that are most favorable to you. Control the paradigm. But this concept is a bit different. It's about introducing efficiency into interactions by defining outcomes in the event that another party fails to respond or take action. You can't force someone to respond to you, and you don't want to end up at a stalemate or an impasse if they don't. Don't let a lack of response from someone else prevent you from doing what you need to do. Basically, when you're dealing with parties and making deals or managing deals, you have to close the loopholes in your communications and structure those communications to produce pathways forward. Let me illustrate this concept with a specific example. And this is a real example from this past week, in fact, in my own company. Here's an excerpt from a letter written by one of our attorneys to a party under contract to purchase a property from us that's supposed to close in about two weeks. Our attorney, I'll call him John to protect his identity, and because that's his name, wrote the following. We have proposed a way to handle CAM at closing without the need for a post-closing true-up and would appreciate your responding to the same. Okay, for my sister Bree. Let me explain a bit of the jargon. CAM is common area maintenance. It is essentially the operating expenses for a shopping center that get passed through and billed to tenants of the center. Whenever you sell a property, at the instant in time that that property transfers ownership, there's a reconciliation to perform based upon the money spent by the seller up through the closing and the money collected or still due to the seller from the tenants. It can certainly get a bit complicated sometimes, and there is no commonly accepted mechanism. And further, such topics are usually not addressed in exhaustive detail in a purchase agreement. This means that the buyer and the seller have to agree on such matters prior to the sale of the property. That's where things get a little sticky. What if they don't agree? What happens? The contract may not be completely clear on this point either. There's no such thing as a perfect contract. Remember that. So again, John wrote, We have proposed a way to handle CAM at closing without the need for a post-closing true-up and would appreciate your responding to the same. So what's lacking in John's communication? Well, John made a proposal to the buyer a month ago. The buyer never responded to his proposal. John is sending this letter to try to get an answer because time is running out. But what if they fail to respond yet again and closing day comes along? What has John done to solve the problem? Really nothing. But he can't control the buyer or their attorney, so there's nothing he can do, right? Wrong. Remember, don't let what you can't do, compel a response in this case, prevent you from doing what you can. So what could John do in this circumstance? It's as simple as adding one sentence that would have gone something like this. If the seller does not receive a response from the buyer prior to 5 p.m. on Friday of this week, the proposal previously provided by the seller shall be deemed accepted by the buyer. As I mentioned earlier, we devoted two episodes of the podcast to the importance of creating a sense of urgency in business. The approach I presented a moment ago is very much associated with this notion of creating a sense of urgency, but it goes a step further 
by defining an outcome in the case that you fail to create a sense of urgency and the other party fails to take any action whatsoever. Now, this approach is not necessarily legally binding in most cases, but it does effectively change the paradigm in managing a business discussion and creates a framework for making forward progress and avoiding a stalemate. Again, structure your communications to achieve results. In order to maintain an achievement-focused mindset, the other thing that you must combat is one of human nature's most persistent and damaging traits, procrastination. Mark Twain captured this inescapable human trait when he wrote, Never put off till tomorrow what may be done day after tomorrow just as well. Obviously, this humorous quote captures our behavior as human beings, and it shows how frustratingly unproductive we can be when left to our natures. I'll share my perspective in this way. Don't let what you don't want to do prevent you from doing what you should do. Does that mean you have to accomplish everything today? Of course not. That's impossible. Does it mean you have to do that thing you really don't want to do today? No. Even that is not necessarily necessary. But don't do nothing in the face of something you don't want to do. Dale Carnegie agreed. In 1944, he wrote in his book, How to Stop Worrying and Start Living, the following. The best possible way to prepare for tomorrow is to concentrate with all your intelligence, all your enthusiasm on doing today's work superbly today. That is the only possible way you can prepare for the future. Certainly sounds like something someone would say in 1944, right? If there's that one thing you really don't want to do and you're avoiding it at all costs, put it off a day or even two, as Mark Twain recommends. As your host here at Datages, I give you permission. Why don't you listen to a few more episodes of the podcast in the meantime? I'm not necessarily joking. You might find something useful or motivating that helps you ultimately bang out that undesirable task. Just know how long it will ultimately take and what your deadline is and don't miss it. And as Carnegie said, don't dilly-dally in the interim. Pick other important objectives that aren't so distasteful to you and work on those things. Make use of your time and put yourself in a working frame of mind. This approach will ensure that you are properly aligned with the troublesome task at hand once you do turn your attention back to it. And it may serve to make you that much more productive in all of the other tasks to which you apply yourself in the interim. I don't think I'm ever more productive at everything I have to do than I am when I'm avoiding something I don't want to do. Practicing all of these behaviors and tricks to boost your own productivity can also give you insight into managing other people and helping them to be more productive empathizing with the unproductive aspects of human nature, and building a set of tools to deal with them can make you a better manager. And when you're running an organization, there's even more to it than that. It's your responsibility to assess team members' capabilities and to guide your team to the highest possible level of collective achievement. When managing others, it is important to remember this. Don't let what a team member can't do well prevent them from doing work at which they excel. Team member capabilities are not absolute. Unless you're talking about flaws of character, 
there aren't really good and bad employees. It is really up to management to identify what someone's skills are and to put them to work in a way that plays to their strengths. In order to facilitate this, I prefer to have a company structure where there are more people and each person is doing fewer things. This allows me as a manager to better align each resource with the specific responsibilities at which they excel. Creating cross-functionality helps as well, so that resources can be more interchangeable. And finally, there is a balance between building collaborative teams and assigning independent responsibility. It is good for people on a team to be able to support one another, but it can be a hindrance to progress if team members are too dependent upon one another and cannot work independently to achieve assigned objectives. By building a dynamic organizational structure, it allows you as a leader to reorganize responsibilities and optimize the overall organizational performance to ensure the highest level of achievement. I've even learned this through producing datages. Initially, I tried to develop the podcast using a consolidated resource structure. I looked for someone who could take on the podcast from end to end. But the more I learned and the further we've gone with datages, the more I understand how many different aspects there are to producing a good podcast and getting it in front of an audience. I came to realize all of these functions could not be performed or even managed by just one resource. What functions go into making a podcast? Here's what I know so far after eight months of doing it. Writing. Recording. Production management. Audio editing. Video editing. Graphic design. Web design. Web management. Publication management. Social media content production. Social media management. Editorial. Web content optimization. Marketing and advertising. Guest management. Bookings and agency functions. HR and payroll. Administrative support. I don't know if you were counting, but that was 18 functions, and I probably missed a few in the list. So how do I decide who does what and how many different resources I need? The process has gone something like this. First, I hired a key person to run as much of the podcast as possible from a production management perspective. That's an executive producer. And it took me a few tries to get that hire right. Then I gradually loaded more and more of the functions onto the executive producer and observed how they managed everything. When things did not get done or were not done properly, I pointed out the failures and looked for the producer to correct those failures. If the corrections did not occur, or if work was not getting done properly, I knew I needed a new resource. As new resources were brought on, I've experimented with different combinations of responsibilities, testing each resource as I've described above. Generally, if someone is doing something well, but either resisting or failing to properly accomplish a particular scope, I give them a couple of opportunities to step up, and then I pull that scope back from them and reassign it. This reassignment process is not a punishment, nor is it a reflection on the overall abilities of the team member. It's an honest evaluation of both capacity and competency, and a realignment of resources to ensure each individual can be successful and contribute to the overall success of the endeavor. I'm ensuring that at a company level, we're not letting what any individual cannot accomplish prevent us all from accomplishing our objectives. And that process continues. We've spent a lot of time today talking about the can versus can't mindset and showing how it can be applied in life and particularly in work, both for individuals and for organizations. 
As I said earlier, the remainder of our discussions on this topic are going to be focused on overcoming far greater challenges as we focus on surpassing the limitations of disabilities to accomplish great things. I'm really looking forward to the rest of our episodes on this topic, to welcoming Martin and Dylan Alcott into the studio, and to our Datages tribute to Disability Awareness Month here in July. Make sure you join us. And today, I'll leave you with this thought-provoking question. What do you call a broken can opener? A can't opener. And there's our dad joke for the day. Remember, dad may not always know what he's talking about, but he sure can sound like he does. Thank you for listening to Dadages. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to visit dadages.com and subscribe to the Dadages podcast to get notified for future episodes. You can rate or review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Why? Because I'm your father, and I said so. Just a little respect is all I ask for. I put a roof over your head and food on the table, and what do you do? No, tell me exactly what do you do, because I am doing everything. I'm paying for everything. No, get back here. Get back here right now.